0: Before we get started with this month's Cucumber podcast, I want to tell you about Cucumber Fest London, our exciting series of events happening in June. Long-time Cucumber users may be familiar with Cucup, our flagship conference which takes place in London and other cities we love. In London this year, we're bowing on a world-class BDD training and a weekend open space. Guest of the pod today, Nat Price, will be speaking at QCup about end-to-end function tests that can run in milliseconds. Visit our website to see the full lineup and book your ticket today. All links in the show notes. The Cucumber Podcast. I'm your host, Azla Kellasoy, and today we are going to talk about property-based testing. Property-based testing is something I have been interested in for a long time, but I never really had the time to try it out. So we decided to get some experts on property testing on the pod to tell us more about it. David MacIver and Nat Price, welcome. Hello. Hi. So, uh, David, um, maybe you can give our listeners a quick background about who you are and what you are up to.
1: Uh, So I've been doing software development for about 10-plus years at this point. And at some point, I just ended up accidentally falling into property-based testing almost. I wrote what happened to be the uh, least worst property-based testing system for Python. Sorry, Nat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And um, people started using it. And so I thought, OK, maybe we'll do a little bit of work on this. And then, sort of the more I got into it, the more I discovered that there was sort of there was a lot of really interesting things going on here, both from a uh, point of view of just testing and improving te- software quality and also from sort of an interesting uh, research side of things. So about three years ago, when I'd quit my last job and had a few months to spare, I sort of sunk some time into it and then I sunk some time more time into it. And these days, it is effectively my job. I sort of w- work on it. The, mostly f- uh, the development is mostly not paid for, but I do sort of training and consulting around it on the side of it as well. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that's where I, I am. Uh, previously, my focus wasn't really on testing, um, but uh, I sort of spent a lot of time working with broken to- and software. So it still, was still a subject dear to, to my heart. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great and uh, yeah, Nat, how about you?
1: Well, I've been programming for
2: <clears throat> years and uh, how many? Coffee, got... <laughs> coffee <Coughety-cough laughs> years and uh, and I I uh, got inspired by test driven development uh, back in the early two thousands and ended up doing a lot of that and uh, co wrote a book about it and wrote libraries for it. Um, and, uh, while doing a lot of TDD, which is in the literature, almost entirely described in terms of fixed examples, uh, I, you know, was also keeping my eye on, you know, other communities, functional programming community in particular, and saw this idea of property based testing or, you know, coming up, um, and was interested in it because it didn't seem to be making any impact on the sort of TDD community. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I've been, you know, started experimenting with it uh, and ran some workshops at various conferences to explore the intersection between property based testing and TDD and trying to understand how uh, property based tests would. Basically, apply design pressure to your code and how does that, uh, how how is that similar and different to uh, example based testing that people usually use for TDD? Uh, And found some places where it fits really well and other places where I found it very difficult. Um, And so, I've been applying it bit by bit in my professional work. Uh, And uh, often for negative testing, for testing sort of error conditions, fuzzing and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And also for testing more uh, sort of mathematical code where there's a more obvious mathematical structures that I want to be able to prove properties about. Uh, So that's, that's where I'm sort of going with it now yeah right uh, and did end up writing a simple uh, overly simple uh, implementation for Python that was just enough to be able to run in workshops right for sort of very very is that simple... the
0: second least worst Python implementation it's, it's or... probably
2: uh, been pushed way down the stack by now <laughs>
1: <laughs> at this point really hypothesis is the only game in town on um, in Python but that's not really surprising given the relative amount of effort that's gone into it yeah um, <laughs> I think at the time, Nats was definitely one of the better ones. Um, I, if I recall, the major reason people were using mine was that initially it was simply that it worked with all the different test frameworks. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So out of curiosity, what what, what was yours called, Nat? Or I guess it's still around.
2: I. I can't remember. <laughs> it shows how much <laughs> Python programming I do now. Um, yeah, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, okay. Probably some terrible pun, because that's how I normally name my projects. Um, but it was, I mean, it was very limited. It did the randomization, uh, managed sort of boundary conditions, but didn't do any shrinking. And I think that was, you know, the major limitation of it was it didn't shrink. The Shrinking is when, when the when the property-based test detects a failure. From a randomly generated uh example. It then tries to simplify the example so that it's easier to understand the failure. If you don't okay. do that, you can get very difficult diagnosis. You can end up so, with like
0: <laughs> Sorry that to interrupt you. Yeah, carry on. I, because I think <laughs> um, I think there might be just a couple of our listeners who have no idea what property-based testing is. So before you go into more of the details, um, I was hoping maybe one of you, or maybe both of you, could give, you know, uh, how would you explain this to your cat, or <laughs> uh, or to your butcher, or you know, what, how, yeah, what is property-based testing, and how is it different from unit tests?
1: Um, so the one of the big things I've been trying to do. Uh, with Hypothesis is teach, you know, tell people that property-based testing isn't different from unit tests. Um, uh-huh. I think there's there's a long-standing belief that it's this fundamentally different thing that is completely different from normal testing, and it's and that's sort of very much encouraged by the way it came out of Haskell. Uh, but really, it isn't. Uh, what property-based testing is is it's a way of letting the computer fill in some of the blank spots in your tests. You say. You write a test more or less as normal, but you say, there's a value here, I don't really know what the value is, I don't care, it looks a bit like this, but beyond that I don't care. And mm-hmm. then the property-based testing library will provide a variety of different values and try and find a case where a specific type of a specific value triggers a bug that you didn't expect in your test. So Uh, And this is where the shrinking that Nat was mentioning comes in, which is that sometimes it will start with a really complicated value, but actually all that mattered was that this property of the value was a negative number or something like that. And so it will try and throw away a lot of the complexity of it. but basically, regardless of the details, what it boils down to is property-based testing is testing where you abdicate making some of the decisions to the computer and see if it can make those better than you did. Does that seem fair or not?
2: Yeah, I, the way I've come to think of it is that, it, that the randomness is not so much part of its fundamental definition. And in fact, I think you wrote that in in one of your articles uh, as well. Is, is that, that sounds
1: like a thing I'd say.
2: Yeah, in that I think of it as a search optimization problem. So like testing systems is not about verifying or validating I mean that's one aspect of it. It's about search for bugs mm-hmm. in the system, and an example-based test that you run exactly the same thing over and over again is a terrible search strategy. Um, randomization, where you just randomly choose things, is also not a great search strategy, but it's a lot better at finding things than always looking in the same place, right? Um, and then you you can see that the random like the sort of the search strategies in some tooling like American Fuzzy Lop, which is a fuzz testing tool that is built for security testing but also has uh, instrumentation built in so it it has something like a genetic algorithm to Mm -hmm. to try and optimize its its fuzzing to to try and run down as many paths in the code as possible that's that's an even better search strategy so i think that uh that it's, it's nice to think about testing as hunting for bugs Yeah, so I don't care about repeatable tests. I care about repeatable failures because I need to diagnose and fix the failure. But I want my test to be constantly looking for new ways to break the system automatically. And that's where property-based testing comes in. It allows you to divide up your thinking about the testing process into... How do I generate things that might break my system? And how do I say what is and isn't correct in my system? Right, And the property of my system is what I describe. And then the search, the sort of randomization or the generating of arbitrary values or whatever is is sort of decoupled from that, that nice description. You end up with really nice, easy to read descriptions of your system in test form when you've got these properties and generators. Much, much Easier, I find, than sort of test example-based tests that are triangulating the system, where you have to infer the property of the system that is being tested from many different examples and hopefully readable test names, but very often not. Um, The property is very a much more precise way of describing, you know, each of these aspects of your system that you want to test.
1: Yep, I very much agree with what Nat said.
0: So I think. But now it'd be really, really good to have an example of um, a property-based <laughs> test. <laughs> can, can you give me a concrete example? Uh, hopefully, yeah, um, yeah I, like you've used it, I haven't really come up with something that would illustrate what, what you just so eloquently explained.
1: So one of the examples I sometimes use in, when talking about this is you've got, um, when you're testing sort of... A website or uh, using Django in my example, but that doesn't matter, and you've got something that happens when you've got a user acting on the system, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter who the user m- most of the things about the user, but you might find that um, this part of the site breaks if uh, you had if their username has a funny Unicode character in it right. and if you were completely specifying the user in your tests, then you would have said their name was usually something like uh, something short, like Alice or Bob, uh, and so you wouldn't notice this because uh, you've overspecified the user. But yeah. if you wrote the test exactly the same way with property-based testing and just said "given a user," then the test can now explore all those additional properties of the user that you didn't specify as just part of your normal testing process.
0: So it'll run the same test over and over again with different names, sometimes with exactly, funny yes. Unicode characters, sometimes not. Yep. Right. I, I wish more people would do that because you, would, would, you couldn't imagine how many places I can't log in just because of my name. I can't even check into the flight you know, because, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because of my name. So
1: yeah if let's i thought result, i video. thought that example might be a bit close to home <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay so that's that's that um i think that that makes it a lot more clear um to me at least um, so i've got a bunch of questions um, can you give me some examples uh like how am I going to ask this well i when I've been reading about property-based testing and and quick check, um, the examples that I see quite a lot are about you know low-level data structures like you can use property-based testing to see whether you've implemented a linked list correctly or you know something low-level. Um, but do you find that it's equally well suited or perhaps better suited to to verify that business rules um, are are implemented correctly? Do you see what I mean? Like, is there an abstraction level where it works better than, uh, than others, or is it like universal?
1: So I think there are sort of the, the two big reasons why you see that sort of thing being used for property-based testing. Any examples are that getting that sort of code right is very tricky, and mm-hmm. um, you mean test Data structures, yeah, but at the same yeah, yeah. time, uh, it's code that is really easy to test well because it's so isolated and self-contained, yeah. so you yeah. get really good examples out of it. Yeah. And I don't think that it's actually a, a because property-based testing is in some way uh, uniquely suited to the testing that sort of things. It's just that it's such a pain to get that right, and property-based testing is so helpful for there that... Mm-hmm. Uh people will sort of want to showcase that um, in terms of the business rules stuff uh, I'm sort of the wrong person to ask because I spend all of my time working on sort of <laughs> this sort of very low level data structure stuff as well these days, so um I don't have uh really good examples for that but I can say that I have heard a lot of really happy reports from people who are just using the Django support to improve their testing of their websites and things like Mm -hmm. that. And In general, because of what I was saying about how property-based testing is really just normal testing where you uh, fill in the blanks, and as Nat put it, this then lets the computer search for it anything that is amenable to testing is in principle improvable with property-based testing by just writing the same sort of tests but omitting a bunch of the details that don't matter. And right.
2: Yeah, I think noticing when you're duplicating testing. So often I've come to things that look like property-based testing in a roundabout way. So we might be system testing, you know, something with a user interface. And there are multiple ways of navigating around the user interface to get to the same place. Now, In our tests, do we always use the same navigation? Well, if you can decouple like how to navigate and the sort of a model of the navigation around the user interface from the you know things that is doing the testing uh, and then allow the t- test to pick arbitrary routes through the user interface every time you run it, now you've created something that is like a property-based test. Right? Mm-hmm. Although you start off with a system test driving in this case sort of an embedded consumer product um, that like through initially through examples eventually you sort of abstract away those examples and and you realize in your tests oh I I'm writing tests to navigate through the menu through the buttons through this through that they're all mm-hmm. the same thing they're just different mechanisms I'm going to hide the mechanism behind abstractions and pick them at random right and now and now something that initially you know, was very traditional, has become like a property-based test. And, he, mm-hmm. and you just keep doing that as you go. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I find property-based testing can be quite hard to sort of start with. Like, what is the... Like, with, with example-based testing, it's very easy. Pick a simple but positive, happy path example. Make it do that in the simplest bit of code. If you're following a TDD process, this is. Then add another one and generalize and add another one and generalize. But how do you pick the most... You know the simplest happy path property for your system is. I find that quite tricky. So sometimes just breaking the back of the problem and getting stuck in with an example is a great way to start, and then you can generalize it into properties. And also sometimes it properties, you know, properties and examples are, have different explanatory power. You know, you can you can. Yeah express the ab- abstract properties of your system, but sometimes you just want to have a look at something and see a real example as well. So I think I think uh, they sort of interplay between each other.
1: Yeah. I definitely like to second that. I think a lot of things, one thing that people who, when they first start using property-based testing, they go, this is amazing, I'm going to use it for all the things. <laughs> and I actually don't think it should be used for all the things. I think when I write tests, they are except in some very specific cases. They are a mix of examples and properties. The way I often describe it is that with property-based testing, it's very easy to go broad. And with example-based testing, it's very easy to go deep. And it's qu- it's harder to go broad with examples, and it's harder to go deep with properties. And it's easier to just mix and match the two to um, apply each to the testing that you think is suitable for. Oh, just with the thing that uh, Nat was saying about navigating user interfaces and stuff, this is actually something that I keep wanting to look into with Hypothesis because Hypothesis and a few other property-based testing systems, although this isn't a common feature, have this idea of stateful or model-based testing where you essentially teach the system how to write programs against your API, and it then generates random programs using your API. And the same principles really should work for uh, user interface testing, where you're not teaching it to run programs, uh, but you're instead saying, this is how you navigate my site. If you're on this page, these are the actions you could take here, and sort of generating essentially random paths through the system, uh, testing it as it goes.
0: Wow. So you could generate, in theory, you could generate a user manual. with with, uh, telling you that you have to go here, and you have to click this, and so on, is that?
1: Yeah, Yeah, pretty much, and uh, in many ways, Cucumber would actually be quite a nice format for some parts of this, because one of the things you have to do when you um, have generated this is find a way of of... Displaying the example back to you back to the person running the test and having a nice textual format for actually representing simple tests of your system is um, is quite important for that and the output from hypothesis for doing this is currently a bit weird and Mm -hmm. For cases where there is a nicer text format for tests uh, It seems like an interesting thing to use
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely some it's something that's um, that we've been talking a lot about uh for the past couple of years is is to integrate um property-based testing tools into cucumber um, um like we've got something well w- w- one of the tensions that people have when they write uh, when they use cucumber to express how the system should behave is that you know they don't oft- oft- they don't always know whether they should express it in a very high level abstract declarative way or in a more low level imperative way with very very concrete examples Mm -hmm. and depending on what kind of domain you're working in and depending on on your understanding of that domain you know you might want to move up and down this scale of abstract and concrete Mm -hmm. Um, and but, but cucumber kind of forces you to make everything concrete in a way right so it would be nice if you could just um, say, for example, that you know everybody who—I don't know—everybody who uh, who signs up for an account um, gets uh, gets an an email confirmation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that what I just said. There was a declarative way of saying that. You know, the the imperative way would be you know when Nat signs up, then he gets an email.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But. So we, so we were very interested in fig- figuring out, you know, is there a way that we could can, can marry the, 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 the Gherkin specification or the, the, the Gherkin language format, which is plain text and understandable by non-technical people with property-based testing. I, I find that really, really interesting. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about Yeah, well, you said maybe that could work. But mm. Nat, what do you think?
2: I think that the table-based... Steps or whatever you call them, um, yeah. where you have placeholders in the in the sort of in the text and then a table of examples.
0: Oh, the scenario outlines. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. 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 So that is is almost there, right? It's just that there's exactly. a fixed set of examples. If you could yeah. plug in the back of one of those instead of mm-hmm. a table. You have arbitrary generators in the back end, in the in the step definitions. Then that's it, yeah. right? And you just and you just configure it to say, you know, I want to run that one a thousand times or whatever, and it just picks a thousand random, you know, examples. Yeah.
0: yeah it's exactly. That that's it's at the scenario outline level. We we would plug them in, and 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 the property based mm-hmm. testing tool sort of would provide at runtime the table with with a thousand. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Examples. Yeah. Um,
1: to some extent, though, it doesn't even need the outlines for a lot of it because um, in the way, as I understand Cucumber, and my understanding of Cucumber isn't very good, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you do have, you do still have this decoupling of the uh, text format for the Gherkin language and the actual feature definitions behind, the, which are behind the scenes often written in code, right? Yeah. And a lot of those feature definitions could still be Um, using some sort of property-based testing system behind the hoods to Mm -hmm. just fill in all the details that are not specified in the high-level Algorokan language. Yeah. Uh, So um, you say, given that I am Jennifer, uh, but you don't know, and that specifies some of those concrete details, but we don't know um, everything about Jennifer. We don't know whether she has a weird email address. We don't know uh, what time zone she's in. And so having the... Concrete definitions um, allied all, so having, having the definitions in code allied all of the bits that are not part of the concrete specification, and just trying varying yeah. those is probably another good way for property-based testing to make it into Cucumber without uh, necessarily the people writing the tests having to know anything about this.
2: I think there's an interesting intersection between the testing aspect of Cucumber and the documentation aspect where uh, like generating lots of random uh, information uh, inputs is great for testing, but you don't want to document like that. So, you know, it's interesting to think how you run the test, but then you generate examples and generate this sort of human readable published description of your system, you know, with some, you know, interesting examples in, it. and you might not want those to look like, Horrible, random, crazy inputs that's trying to break the system, but look more useful and more realistic uh, to to sort of express to your user base what the system is doing better.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to change direction a little bit and ask more about the uh, the developer experience. Um, so, Nat, you you mentioned that you you were interested in exploring the, the intersection between test driven development and property based testing. And just to remind the users, test-driven development means you, you write a test and then the test informs you what code you need to write. Um, have you? Have either of you tried to use a property-based testing tool as a, a vehicle to drive TDD?
1: I will let Nat answer this one. Yes.
0: Uh,
2: <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I have. Uh, and, and there's two, two things to try with that. One of them is, Trying to do a totally classic TDD loop, but with property-based testing, and 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 grow the system bit by bit, uh, which is an interesting experience. I wrote about it on my blog, and other people have also given it a go, and uh, and and I've done some sort of Carters. I'm not I'm not sure I really know the right approach. What I find is that where in 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 a normal example-based TDD process you will start with a single concrete example and just enough code to sort to, to implement that one example then you'll add another example and you'll slightly generalize the code to do both examples and so on and so on and so on so your code starts very specific but then becomes more and more generic as you add more examples to constrain what it has to do um, with property-based testing it seems to go the opposite way that i i it's easy, it seems to be easiest to like start with something very vague and very g- generic um and add more properties which then sort of more and more constrain the solution space where the the code starts off as an arbitrary implementation within the space of, you know, that is defined by a very generic property. Um, And then you add more properties which constrain it and your code becomes more and more specific uh, until eventually it does what you want. Um, And I find it a really interesting process. One of the problems i found with properties is actually getting the generators right was much harder than I expected. So, when you've got uh, when the generators are simple and you can compose them uh, it's uh, into, you know, uh, I can compose generators for all the fields into a generator of a structure that has those fields. That's great. But but when you have more complicated constraints between all the different arbitrary values, I I've, I've found that be quite difficult and i was finding myself writing invalid generators that didn't meet the expected preconditions of my system um and then but then but what i found was if i kept these really vague properties in my system in my tests they were acting as sort of safety checks for the next properties and next generators i was writing to make sure that they weren't generating things that would then generate like things that broke those really really vague uh uh uh, abstractions so things like you know taking a really silly example like if i'm if i've got a property which is the volume of a of a sphere or you know or the or the surface area or something it can't be negative right it's a really vague property right but if i have an if I have a um, uh, some generators that generate some negative numbers for for dimensions, which is invalid and should never be a you know passed into something to disc- I yeah. can't have a, a a sphere of negative radius, right? right? Then these safety properties will catch the fact that my generators are invalid. So these you know sort of like it's, it's an interesting experience. Uh, and, okay. I'm not saying I yeah. really understand the entire process yet, and and often in the sort of systems I build, then 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 you know there are pieces which are just much more amenable to example-based testing and not a lot of deep, low-level sort of uh, algorithmic code that where property-based testing is really paying off. The one place I do find it pays off a lot is in negative testing. And this is, again, is a... um, is a sort of gap in TDD. When you're doing TDD, you're often focusing on these positive cases. I'm going to add the next feature, add the next feature. Exactly. Um, And and empirical studies, I think there was a paper published at XP 2015 where they studied TDD projects and found that uh, negative tests would, would actually uncover a lot of bugs in the system, so they they, they weren't yeah. like uh, making the system as robust as as it should be uh, because the TDD process was was like encouraging them to think positive. Um, and so yeah. I wrote a library called Snodge, which is basically a library for mutating JSON. Uh, so you you when you're writing your TDD process for some say uh, some are TDDing up some networking. Code for example that's going to parse some JSON coming in off the network. You don't want you want to make sure that the that the, the, that code always reports errors in a way that will be get turned into appropriate error responses back to the you you know to the client and won't throw an exception or whatever. Um, and so you, you you tdd it up and you do all the positive cases. And now you've got loads of positive examples, but how do you generate negative examples to make sure that your your parser is robust? If you just mm. randomly generate strings you're not going to exercise all of your parsing code you're, you're going to hit an error like immediately exactly yeah. you know almost yeah. all the time you're going to hit an error in the first few bytes or whatever and 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 something in your recursive descent parser that's like going to be like you know at the far like parsing the far end of your stream is never going to get exercised so what snodge does is it takes a a good example randomly mutates it uh in as many ways as it can possibly f- uh find it, you know, and generating a, a, a an arbitrary long sequence of random mutations of that good one and then gives you you know a, a, a certain number of those out of the stream um and so you can say give me a thousand random mutations of a good message right and if i try yeah. and parse those my parsing code should never leave my you know, embedded system in a bad state, for example, right? Um, and and the, wow, that was really. I thought I've been writing my networking code really carefully, and then I wrote mm. this tool. I ran it against my parsers, and it uncovered so many bugs. I mean, it, this was in Java, and and yeah. Java has lots of places where you know you can easily uh, parse you know code, and it will. It doesn't have type safety around. You know, around its exceptions in, in some cases, and so it will blow up like and let an exception run through some of your horrible stateful code that you've got in an embedded system and and you know could could brick the box and you don't want that and so actually it uncovered lots and lots of cases where in code that i thought i'd written to be really robust so i've been using yeah. that library again and again for testing ex- this kind of code un- you know doing the negative testing automatically finding as many possible cases that it can try and you know break the parser it's been really really useful so uh yeah those are the two aspects of, sort of like where i'm Finding property-based testing sort of fits into mm-hmm. TDD. Yeah, that's
0: very very interesting.
1: So I'd like to just elaborate on two things that Nat said, which uh, I agree with most with most to all of that, by the way. But um, one of the things is that with the composing generators and sort of getting generators for valid input, uh, this is something that yeah, property-based testing has historically been really very. It's been really very difficult for people to get right because as soon as you want to sort of uh, test complex things, uh, suddenly you need to know about all of the low-level details of how property-based testing actually works and how things fit together. So, a lot of what I've been doing with Hypothesis has been sort of usability work and sort of trying to make it as easy as possible for people to write generators which just do the right thing. So, uh, if you haven't tried it already, uh, if you haven't tried it yet. And uh, it's already, Nat, I do recommend giving Hypothesis a try on some of that because uh, it is essentially a generator composition toolkit for solving a lot of these problems. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, yeah, this experience of thinking your code is really robust and then <laughs> running property-based testing on it is very much what very much matches what both I've personally experienced and what... Users have experienced like a lot of the new HTTP two stuff in Python is tested with Hypothesis, and um, I think they've been having some fun with that, <laughs> <laughs> and finding a, um, found a bug uh, or two. I think one. I think one or two. I think it was already very robust, but particularly I, I remember the HTTP who has this sort of priorities notion that I don't understand because I don't understand HTTP very well. But um, it it was one of these cases of the sort of the complex data structure implementation thing where you had a tricky algorithm to get right. And so property-based testing was very suitable. And I think Corey screamed a lot at me when he was writing that code because of <laughs> how many problems <laughs> hypothesis was finding in it.
2: I was just going to say, there's a, there's a great presentation that John Hughes, uh, the author of QuickCheck, uh, does, where he uh, um, basically writes a ring buffer uh, in c and uses quick check to test it and and like writes it wrong or finds the bu- the bug you know asks the audience to you know for a suggestion of how to fix it and the audience suggests you know someone in the audience shouts out the answer he runs quick check again finds a different bug right and then uh and, and a ring buffer should be very very simple a ring buffer in an array with with two sort of moving indices but actually like it Take several rounds of thinking about it before, like all the suggestions from the audience have actually made it work. Uh, and QuickCheck is there, like finding these bugs one after another. It's it's, it's a great presentation. Mm-hmm. You can probably find it on uh, on YouTube or, or Vimeo or something like that.
1: Yeah, one of the things I like related to that of having property-based testing in my t- toolkit is it expands the scope of what you can trust yourself to write because. Once you've sort of had this experience of taking something that feels very simple and discovering just how hard it really is, it can be really, really damaging to your confidence, right? You can go, well, maybe I'll just avoid doing anything like that. But having some level of belief that your tool, if you do make this sort of mistake, your tools will call you on it is actually really nice because it means that these things can stay in your toolkit despite being scary, because you do know how to actually write them correctly to, or at least sufficiently correctly that they will work most of the time in production because <laughs> I no longer believe in fully correct code. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so one of the things that, that I k- k- keep thinking about when I'm listening to you guys is, um, is you know, the, 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 the speed. How long does it take to run all of these tests? Because it, what it sounds like is that every test that you write um, uh, you know the property based testing tool is going to generate you know hundreds or thousands of, of it's going to run the same test over and over again with many different values um, now a lot of the teams that i talk to you know they have you know each one each one of their imperative tests that they've written in in cucumber or, or, or j unit or something takes two seconds or 10 seconds or, or a minute now how does this how can this possibly scale how can you how can people run thousands of tests and, and, and actually get feedback in a decent amount of time?
2: Well, I think this is an, one of the you know, interesting design pressures that this puts on your on your system architecture your software architecture that you you want to be able to isolate pieces of functionality in a way that you can property-based test them and know that they'll compose into the system safely um so if you think of you know the networking parsing example well you know our json parsers are pure functions that we just you know use in in another part of the system but we've they have a you know a a strongly typed interface so i i know that they will you know only return either a success of a properly parsed value or a failure where there's an error code that has a pointer to the exact node in the json that has you know that caused the error and my property based tests will tell me right this function with all of this, all all of these examples randomly mutated m- meets that contract, and right? and now I can compose it into use it in my system. The type system will ensure that it's being used correctly and can't be used incorrectly in the rest of the system. And so I think it pushes you into these like trusted composable pieces uh, that can be tested very very fast. You know. Mm. Each one of those, uh, ex- you know, randomly generated examples can be tested in you know a couple of milliseconds, not 10 yeah. seconds, and that makes a difference. That's what you've got to try mm-hmm. and change your system to allow.
0: Right. So it has this positive impact on how you decouple your code, so that Absolutely. you can test the yeah. important things in isolation. So it sounds like it would be crazy then to to use uh, a tool like Hypothesis together with with Selenium and a web app that talks to a database and and maybe a web service. That I mean that. So I,
1: I don't actually agree. I think uh, (laughs) I mean I I do agree with Nat that this this pressure exists, and property-based testing absolutely works better when you can run your small tests really fast. But the thing is, a property-based test that only runs one example is still a property-based test, and it's particularly when you've factored property-based tests out of example-based tests, if you've. Replaced one or 10 example based tests with one property based test, and you run it the same number of times, then from a development point of view, it will usually be as good. And then when it's not on the fast path and you're sort of running your um, pre merge CI or even a nightly build or something, then you can just dial up the number of tests it runs. So Mm. property based testing doesn't become useless when you're Um, when your tests are very slow, it just degrades to only as useful as example-based testing or as the equivalent of example-based testing.
2: I'd say actually though more useful than example-based testing because you're going to run with a different example every time. So on the example I was talking about earlier about the you know embedded consumer product we would be running all of our tests with uh sort of random or live you know some random data some live data which was then changing outside our control um that we would capture for sort of repeatability purposes but the point was that each even we would run it on every commit right there's a continuous integration and so each commit would run some different route through the system and hopefully uncover new and unexpected bugs uh you know if if they hadn't been exercised and not been discovered before so that's better than having a single example and running it over and over again because it is exploring more of the system it just happens to be doing it more slowly because because it it is a test that runs more slowly and that's unavoidable but
1: still better yep absolutely
0: yeah Um, David, uh, so you are the author of Hypothesis, and I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about what motivated you to write that tool, and and how is it different from, so two questions, why why did you write it, and how is it different from other property-based testing tools like QuickCheck, apart from being written in Python, not Haskell? Uh,
1: So the honest answer of why I wrote it was originally just because it was fun. Um, it that's a good
0: that's a very good reason. <laughs>
1: yeah. it w- it was fun. It was an interesting problem. and then the more I worked on it, the more I realized that I had something really useful and worthwhile here. And so it sort of ended up taking over my life. but the the original motivation was simply a personal interest. Um, the way it's different from other property based testing tools, Does originally boil down basically to it being in Python rather than Haskell, but um, that was sort of the starting point. Like one of the big problems with property based testing in general, I think, is that there are lots of things that people believe about it that are actually only true because QuickCheck was originally written in Haskell and don't have anything to do with property based testing. Um, And so a lot of what I sort of particularly the early work in Hypothesis was me figuring out. What are the sort of the things about property-based testing were accidental and were meaning that it wasn't matching very well with imperative programming? and what about them could be improved? and also uh, things that were just basically practical obstacles to ad- adoption? Like one of the things hypothesis does, which is relatively unusual, um, and is if a test you run with hypothesis fails and you rerun it, it will fail in the same way. And that sounds like a thing you obviously want, and almost no one else implements that. Um, even where people do, they do it by saving a random seed. And one of the things that is actually problematic in property-based testing is often failure is slower than success, because the shrinking process can be quite slow. And so your test fails, and then you wait sort of like another 30 seconds, and in order to figure out why, it, why it's failed, was with hypothesis it will just replay the failing example immediately and everything will work great. And mm. so it's things like little practical details like that is what ended up driving a lot of the design decisions of Hypothesis. But this has sort of ended up with a very different API, sort a of very different implementation of the, of the idea that is basically unique to this. Because normal property-based tests are very, or rather normal property based testing implementations are very they have a sort of a general idea of what data is what data they can generate and then how to shrink that data and things like that while hypothesis has this sort of uniform underlying model where it represents every test in a way that to, is to it very concrete so it can generate almost anything and it can still shrink it and it can still save it because it doesn't actually care what the values that is given you are it's still working with just sort of this concrete representation instead and that probably didn't make a huge amount of sense and that's because it really is one of the areas that i haven't explained well enough to people in general because as a user of hypothesis no one really needs to know about this it's just sort of like this thousand lines of very hairy code that's sitting at the heart of it that makes everything magically work um, but H-
0: have you tested that with hypothesis by any
1: chance? I have, yes. Um <laughs> it's the sort of the very low-level engine details have a lot of example-based tests because there is a certain amount of lack of trust um as to if you let hypothesis completely self-test, it might just return, yep, everything works great. <laughs> but there are things like um a lot of tests have use Hypothesis to run the test repeatedly with a different random seed and a different sort of shape of constraint to uh, try and probe it in different areas of the system and that sort of thing. So I think Hypothesis has quite a lot of tests of Hypothesis using itself, but also a fair number of examples in it as well. Yeah,
0: so I've seen that there is a there's a Python obviously the, the original Python implementation and there is a Java implementation of Hypothesis as well.
1: The Java implementation is really—it's a feasibility prototype. It's—I okay. uh, was talking with someone for a while about trying to get funding to turn it into more than a feasibility prototype, and that kind of fell through. And mm. uh, so far, like, I'm already maintaining one version of Hypothesis for free, which is a fairly significant job, and I kind of don't want to maintain multiple language versions unless there's some sort of funding for that, which yeah. I haven't quite been able to figure out yet. Uh, it's possible the Java version may get more full-fledged as part of my PhD work when I start, that, start doing that, but it's also possible it won't. We'll see.
0: Yeah. Have you, have you considered um, um, crowdfunding? I mean, there's a couple of projects. You know, JUnit 5 did that successfully. Um, there's a couple of other open-source... I think they raised £50,000 or something.
1: I have, but the problem is basically that what I, what I want for this sort of thing is not lump sums of money but ongoing support because the problem with writing a project isn't the actual initial implementation Um, and it's all of the things that come afterwards, sort of the ongoing maintenance, the uh, keeping up with new versions of JUnit, keeping up with this you know, people's use cases and finding bugs. So tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I figured I was probably preaching to the choir here. Yeah, yeah. So I think but people that, don't realize that. People don't realize yeah, that an open source project is for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Uh, one of the problems I have with Hypothesis as a business is that I'm not very good at sales and marketing, which is probably why I haven't figured out a good funding model for the Java side of things yet. But basically, if, if someone wants to uh, fund ongoing development of that, then I would happily try and do some sort of crowdfunding to raise money for the initial development. But yeah. until I've figured out the question of how the ongoing maintenance of it will fund itself. I don't really want to turn it into more than a feasibility prototype because if the ongoing maintenance isn't funding itself, then what will actually happen is that I will do it for free rather than that it won't get done. So um, I kind of don't want to get sucked into that. <laughs> if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Mm. Very responsible. Um, yeah. Better. You'd rather do it. You'd rather do it well than than, yep. than half fast.
1: Yeah. In general, that's what I try to model. I I try to let Hypothesis model how I would like development to work rather than how I see development usually working in practice. So (laughs) the Hypothesis itself sets a slightly terrifyingly high standard that I don't know if I'm going to be able to live up to in future projects.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, guys. um, We are uh, approaching um, the end of the show and um, it's been incredibly interesting to uh, to talk to you uh, both david and Nat, and I've, I've learned a lot and i'll be listening to my own podcast and, and trying to understand all the things i didn't understand <laughs> <laughs> live on the radio all right guys uh, and listeners and uh, ladies and gentlemen um thanks for listening to the podcast and um, please come back for a later episode we don't really know what's going to happen in the next one bye-bye